Good evening, everybody. And as Robert said, this is going to be our last uh, gathering for this little block, and we'll take a little break, and then we'll, we'll pick back up in the fall for our midweek fellowship. Um, and tonight, we're going to be looking pretty quickly at three very important topics in this, this idea of marks of a healthy church. Um, and before I get going, let me pass out a couple books that are the topics that we'll cover tonight. And you may think, oh, this stuff isn't very exciting. It's not real practical to the Christian life. You would be mistaken. This is very practical. Um, and, and these are short books that I think will help you. So the first one is church membership, how the church knows who represents Jesus. Does anybody want one of these? It's free for you to take. That's the Sam. Take that. Um, and did I get your name right, Sam? I did? Yeah, good. Okay. I just learned it, so I want to make sure. Uh, I'm just, I mean, what are you going to do, correct me publicly? I mean, you'd probably be too humble to do that. Um, church discipline, how the church protects the name of Jesus. This is a really important topic that we're going to talk about tonight. Stephen, I'm going to have to thread the needle. You're all right. Ooh, yeah, still got it. All right, church elders, how to shepherd God's people like Jesus. This is a really good little book. Anybody want this? Simone, all the way in the back. Drew, can you take this to Simone? There you go. Thank you. All right. So let me tell you a little story about a young pastor um, who 13 years ago uh, was on staff at another church. And as he was being encouraged by this church that he was on staff at to plant a church, he unwittingly was going through a complete theological transformation. He was basically... um, uh, moving from one end of the theological spectrum to another as he's planting the church. I wouldn't recommend you do that if you're a church planter, um, but that was the place I found myself in um, 13 years ago, and I came to quite different convictions on the sovereignty of God in all things and the centrality of, of uh, the Bible in the Christian life and in the life of the church. Um, but one thing that I did not have a very good grasp on, I had a good understanding of how God saves people and the exhaustive and utter and good sovereignty of God in all things. And I think I had a pretty good understanding of how the Bible fits together. But one thing that was still sort of fuzzy in my mind when we planted Crosspoint Church 13 years ago was how the church is supposed to live together, work together, how, how the church should should, should uh, function? And what does a healthy church look like? What is the ecclesiology? And that word ecclesiology is a theological term meaning kind of how the church does life together. And so uh, for the first couple years of Crosspoint, as we were meeting up at the old Mountain Hill Schoolhouse in, in Harris County, um, some of these concepts that we've been talking about for these past four weeks for, were still kind of very hazy in my mind. And then, um, 2008, 2009, a couple years in, I started to read a book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church by a pastor in Washington, D.C., Mark Dever, that if you've been around Crosspoint for a while, you know that has been very influential on me and this church. And then went up to a training at his church and uh, just really transformed and really kind of added uh, just the flesh to the skeleton of my understanding of the church and has been absolutely instrumental in, I think, the, the, just the, whatever God has done at Crosspoint um, is, is these concepts, these, I think, biblical concepts have been absolutely important uh, and essential. And what we're really getting at is that the church, 
should reflect the character of God to the onlooking world. That how we live together, not just the gospel and doctrine that we believe and the message we preach, as important and central as that is, but actually the way we live together as Christians in a family is a kind of display of the character of God and part of God's plan, part of God's plan to communicate his attributes to the world and to evangelize the world. And so today, tonight, we're going to look at these three interrelated ideas of of just biblical church membership, um, church discipline, and then leadership. And so really these first two kind of go together, membership and discipline. And, you know, I kind of think like I'm, you know, the the old sort of phrase, you're preaching to the choir. The, The type of people that are coming on a summer Wednesday night, you know, are, are generally people that are, are uh, aware of these concepts, or maybe you're, you're kind of more part of the core of Crosspoint. So some of this may be things that you already uh, agree with or, or understand, but if that is the case with you, I want to encourage you to be a kind of, a kind of a cheerleader for these principles and ideas in the life of the church, for you to, to see yourself as a kind of ambassador for biblical church health in your little spheres of influence in the church. And if you're not aware of these things, or maybe you're newer, or, or you've been across point for a while, and it's just that these things haven't crossed your radar, then, then tonight, Lord willing, will be, will be beneficial. The first thing I want us to talk about is membership. And here's the concept, kind of the, the you know, the, the military acronym. We're a military-friendly church. Bluff, the bottom line up front, is that the church should, the members of the church, as best as we can, can, can uh, work towards should be born-again Christians, and that membership in the local church should be a recognizable and committed, meaningful relationship. Another thing that I remember a force kind of on my heart 13 years ago when we were planting in the church is that when you're a church planner and you don't have any people, you just want people to come. And there is a huge temptation to just lower the standards as much as you can and just let any, because you just want people. And we, I think by nature as Americans, just want things to be big and successful. And we often measure success by how large things are. And so there's a great impulse, not only in new churches, but in just for, for, the, for the front door to be as wide as possible so that as many people can get in the room as possible so that I think subconsciously the pastors can feel successful. And that's a terrible way to do church. Not, of course, that we don't want people to come. Of course we do. But we want to take membership seriously. There's three little bullet points there. Uh, I think biblical church membership should be a group of people that are committed to one another, that are responsible for one another, and that see assurance as a community project. So uh, you're not going to find a verse in the Bible that says you should join a local church. Uh, But I think that that concept, although not explicitly stated, is implicitly stated all throughout the Bible. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, for example, starting in verse 23. I think we'll have it on the screen maybe. Hebrews 10 verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So I think just kind of clearly, if we just stare at that text for a minute, 
that clearly the writer of Hebrews has in view that Christians are to do one another good. And in one sense, you can say that a Christian is to do all people good as best they can. I mean, that's part of just showing love to the world. But it seems like that the shot group is a little tighter here. It seems like there's what's in view here is other Christians. And then it seems even tighter than that. It seems like other Christians that you are gathering with regularly. And so there's this sense there that we have a commitment to one another. And in a sense, clearly, I want to try and do good to all people. And in another sense, I want to certainly have a special eye towards brothers and sisters in Christ in my city and around the world. But in a particular sense, this text, and I think many others in the New Testament, argue for a kind of committed relationship between people in the church. And I think part of that is God's design for our discipleship because something about life in the local church is it, is it yokes you to people who sometimes you haven't chosen to love. They're, they're not, it, in fact, I think it's part of a healthy church is when there's a wide variation of different types of people from different, you know, stratospheres of society. And when they're together, and the only reason that they're together is their commonality in Christ, it has a particular different kind of aroma than a bunch of people who are together because they're all, you know, of, of one particular demographic. Does that make sense? And when you can't really choose the people that you conveniently want to do the Christian life with, but you are forced biblically to prioritize your commitments to some degree in time and energy towards people in the local church who may not be your first choice, that's actually good for us. It, and, and it's, but it's kind of, it slows us down and it's messy and sometimes it's inconvenient, right? But that's, I think that's actually part of God's design. So, so the next time you're part of a church that isn't necessarily cool and hip and sexy and awesome and convenient, consider that maybe that's part of God's design. Because the world is made up of like all different sorts of people, right? And if we all just hung around people that it was easy for us to hang around with, then, then, then uh, well, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be healthy, right? Um, so it's a group of people that are committed to one another. It's a group of people that are responsible for one another. They go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Um, 1 Thessalonians right before the pastoral epistles. 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 5. Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Uh, this isn't the main point I want to make from this text, but I think just implied in that is a kind of formal commitment of church life. I mean, who do you know who's over you? You know, I mean, like Bill Douglas is the pastor of St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church, and I think he is a dear brother, but he's not over you in the sense that this text is, is, is calling. He's not over me. He's my brother in Christ, and, has, and clearly he has like a brotherly authority over me, but clearly there seems to be some implied relationship between the flock and their leaders. Be at peace among yourselves. And then look at verse 14, how it says Christians should t treat each other in this church in Thessalonica. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So it, I think we should have our heads on a swivel for the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak. And that's kind of part of the 
that's part of the Christian life, and we're responsible for one another. Um, Colossians chapter 3, uh, to the left, it's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I love this text. Colossians 2, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against each other, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, so again, I think of the context of the local church, not just generally the Christian life. Certainly that's true generally, but I think the context here is the, is the local assembly. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Again, I think the context there is this gathered time of worship, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So again, there's no explicit statement in there that says you should be a committed, meaningful member of a local church, but I think that's, I think that's implied in that text, that that is, that is the regular rhythm of life for a Christian. And then finally, I think that there is this sense, and this is sort of bleeding into this idea of discipline, which we'll get into in a second, that assurance is a community project, that we are responsible for issuing a kind of validation of, the, of our testimony to one another. In fact, I think that's one of the main reasons that I would argue for a kind of formal commitment to a church. In our English language, we call that church membership. But whatever it's called or whatever, a formal relationship commitment to a local assembly, why I think it's so important because there is in the New Testament clearly there is an inside of the church and there's an outside of the church. And, and that's for our good, which we'll see here in just a second in, in, uh, when we get to discipline. So in 1 John 2.19, the Apostle John is talking about just that antichrists are coming. Don't think of like the Antichrist, capital A, the, uh, in, in an end time sense, but just think of people who are against Christ, against the church. And he says of these people in ch- chapter 2, verse 19 of 1 John, they went out from us. But they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be complained that they are all not of us. And so there's this sense that, you know, the church, there's a sifting in the church where there was people who kind of eventually, for a variety of reasons, in this case, we, we, you know, maybe not preaching about Jesus or denying the faith in some way. But again, contextually, it could be different in our sense where they were, they proved themselves not to be believers. So they, there was an in and an out. And I think that implied in that is this mechanism of recognizing who is trusting in Christ and part of the family of God and who is not. I think all of these things argue for a serious, committed membership. I mean, I could say many other things, like who chooses the leaders? Um, Who affirms new members? If we were to do church discipline, which we're going to talk about in a second, who are the people that actually get to do that? When Paul says, and I'm bleeding into point number two here, but when Paul says to the church in Corinth, put this person out, who are the people that do that? I think all of that, argue, just people that have been coming to the church for three months or six months, or, or no, I think that all of that implies a kind, of, a kind of formal commitment. What did that look like in the first century? We're not exactly sure, but at a minimum, whatever it was culturally, it was an, an understanding that this person's part of the church, 
And we see in early church records, a lot of that was through baptism. Um, their faith in Jesus didn't express publicly in baptism, and these people aren't part of the church. And when we're part of the church together, we have a kind of commitment and responsibility for one another. Um, any, any comments, questions about that? I, think, I, just, I know that's not, the, like the, that's not the type of thing you read in a devotional in the morning that just gets you up like, yes! But, but do you see how if that's not part of a church's culture, how the church can just sort of be like mushy without skeleton, without like bones and not really defined. I think it's important. Yeah, Elaine, so Shay. Can you, somebody give her a mic, maybe? Daniel, do you have a mic? Oh. Yep. Yeah. In China all those years ago, that one of the main things, we would talk to people about the Lord and we would try to get in these relationships with Chinese people but what they noticed wasn't that. It was how our group loved mm. each other. Mm -hmm. So we'd take them, you know, we'd have a Thanksgiving program with all these religious things going on. And then we'd take them back to our apartment and we'd say, what would you think? And they said, y'all really love each mm. other. It wasn't mm. the program. It wasn't what we mm -hmm. said. It was how we related to each other. Yeah, and I've yeah. seen that over and over again in Columbus. Yeah, amen. How we love each other is yeah. what draws people in. And, and, I mean, didn't Jesus say that exactly almost, you know, that by this all... The world will know that you are my followers by how you love one another. Amen. Yeah. That's a great point, Elaine. Anybody else have anything? So, so just before we move on, just as a little point of application, because we may be thinking, I got this. No, a point of application is that if you are not a member of this local church or another Bible-believing church, I, humbly as a pastor, but with some strength and exhortation, would commend you to consider church membership as soon as possible. If... Not necessarily, don't, 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 tell, don't take that as me just trying to grow the roles here. Not, that, that, if this isn't the place for you, we will recommend other Bible-believing churches for you. If you are a member of this church, can I, can I exhort you and encourage you to be a kind of evangelist for church membership amongst your uh, spheres of influence in this church? That you see yourself as, as part of responsible to sort of to, to uh, cross-pollinate good good biblical understanding of the Christian life with people that, that you may be close to at Crosspoint that have not joined. So um, that, that just, a, just a couple little points of application there. Okay, discipline. Um, and, you know, this is a word that uh, we don't use very often in our church culture, but is absolutely important. And, and in a sense, I want us to think of, when we think of discipline, um, don't just think of the end state of the most negative case where a person is excommunicated from a church. I think that's, that's absolutely essential, and that's kind of the bottom line. But think of discipline as not only being a punitive or corrective, but also instructive. I think that discipline is a kind of discipleship. In fact, it's the same root word. That Really, when Christians, I hope that church discipline in a uh, proactive sense is happening every time we gather that as we sing songs to one another, we're in a sense, we're disciplining, we're exhorting one another. We're singing songs to one another, as Colossians 3 said. As we read scripture, as we pray, as we, Lord willing, as we preach from God's word, um, as we have conversations in the hallway, um, it's a kind, and when, when, when you are a good member of the church and you, you realize that somebody hasn't been here for a while and you call them, you're actually exercising a kind of, and say, hey, how you been? Where you been? I have missed you. Come on back. It's not good for you to not. You're exercising a kind of first level, gentle 
church discipline. You're being exhortive, and that's the responsibility of all the church. In fact, we just read it from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, right? It helped the weak, admonish the idle. That's church discipline at its earliest stages. But ultimately, church discipline, I think when we, we need to see it kind of at its, at its end case to see how it, it, it helps to purify the church, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, I'm sure you are familiar with this text. We've spent some time working through it um, on occasion here. But it's been a while, and the context in 1 Corinthians 5, the, what I'm encouraged by about 1 Corinthians is the church. First Corinthians, the Corinthian church was just an absolute mess. Um, you know, just all sorts of idolatry and carnality and idol worship and pagan rituals and all that kind of stuff. But yet, you know, God loved them, and he sent Paul to them, and Paul loved them as well, even though he spent most of his first letter just absolutely lambasting them. But he says in chapter 5, he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. In other words, the world doesn't even stand for this type of stuff. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant, he's saying to the church. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let, and look what Paul says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. So in other words, put this man out. Well, if there's something to be put out of, I think on the converse, there's something to be put into, and I think that, that text right there just argues for some sort of formal, meaningful membership. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, verse 3, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Now that's a phrase. For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You don't see many Christian t-shirts with that verse on it. And that's, that's a pretty striking phrase. What is Paul saying in verse 5? He's saying, you, you are to deliver. It's, it sounds like a, like a, almost like a prisoner exchange. And like, is, is there a... I remember we had a membership class a couple runs ago, and Mark Neal, who's a newer member of the church, he plays the guitar, some really talented guitar player, and he's a police officer. And I made the statement, I says, what, is there, what does this text mean? Does it mean there's a physical place in Columbus where if we were to excommunicate somebody from the church that we, could, we know Satan is at and we could march them to and hand them over to Satan? I mean, there's no physical place. And he's like, well, actually, I'm a police officer and I think there may be some places where Satan actually... I said, okay, well, may, maybe. But you understand what Paul is saying here. It's figurative. It's figurative, isn't it? But think about how Paul starkly, Paul views... Life in the covenant community and life out of the covenant community. This is the same Paul that writes Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, where he says that you were following the course of this world ruled by the prince of the power of the air, which is a reference to spiritual forces of wickedness, Satan. And so Paul sees life in the church. Paul, Paul, Paul you, know, you know, I think Paul believed that there were only two types of people in the world. Regenerate and unregenerate, born again, and not people, sheep and goats. And inside the church is sheep, and outside the church is goats. And so he's saying, you are to deliver this man, you are to excommunicate him, to, to, to put him out of the church. Why? So that, look at what he's saying here, so that, there's two reasons so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, in the hopes that this 
communal activity on the part of these people that were in fellowship with you would serve as a kind of smelling salt in the nostrils of somebody who's punch drunk with sin and wake them up. So for the sake of his soul, let's, let's have severe mercy towards this guy. And then there's a second reason, and he goes on to say it's for the holiness of the church. So he goes on in verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little, little leaven leavens the whole lump? In other words, a little sin, if you just let it stay in this batch of dough, the local church, it can mess the whole batch of dough up. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, friends, don't, don't misunderstand. Paul's not saying we have to kick all of the sinners out of the church because if that were the case, right now we'd have to all run out of this building and turn out the lights. The church is full of sinners. Amen? What's at issue here is egregious unrepentant sin that besmirches the witness of the gospel and the character of God as it's put on display in the local church. Do you see that? The church is a hospital for sinners. I love that Richard Sibbs quote from uh, Bruised Reed where he says, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit is content to dwell in smoky, offensive souls and so therefore we should have the same merciful disposition towards one another, of course, right? We're all still struggling with sin. The issue here is egregious, public, unrepentant sin that besmirches, and that's clearly the case in 1 Corinthians 5, that besmirches the witness of the gospel and the, the, the display of the gospel in the local church. And what Paul says here is that he says that you are to all put this man on you. He's talking to the whole church. And that's exactly what's happening in Matthew chapter 18. And I, I, I preached on Matthew chapter 18 a couple weeks ago where we read. In fact, let's just kind of go there real quick. Matthew chapter 18. Um, and then we'll take some questions or comments where Jesus is not just speaking to the elders or the leaders of the church, but he's speaking to the whole church. And he says, if your brother sins against you, go Tell him his fault. Verse 15 of Matthew 18, you have gained your brother, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So you see this kind of growing, gradual, concentric circles. Individual didn't work. Reconciliation didn't work. Witness didn't work. If he refuses to listen to, listen to them, tell it to the church. Church, word meaning ecclesia, the, the called out assembly, the whole body. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, the whole congregation... So who's the church? I think that implies meaningful membership. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So in other words, put him out. Treat him like somebody who's living in the world. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed. Prosperity gospel preachers on TBN like to use that as kind of like, you know, woman, thou art loosed. (laughs) That's not what that verse is talking about, okay? I'm not saying that, you know, we shouldn't pray for each other if we have a demon or something, but I'm saying that this verse is talking about the keys of the kingdom, and do you see the implicit implication? That's a redundant. Do you see the implication of what Jesus is saying about the responsibility of being in the church is that we have the keys, metaphorically speaking, to the doors of the kingdom of God. Now, we realize, we realize, of course, that we are not the people, we're not the final 
court of authority of who is actually a Christian or not. Only God is that. And I'm not saying that you have to be a member of the church to be a Christian. That would be heresy. That would be adding something to Jesus' work. That would be like saying you need to be baptized to be a Christian or you need to be speaking tongues or have some spirit. That, 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 all those things are false. But Jesus here is taking life in the local church so seriously that he's handing us over the keys, knowing that sometimes we will unlock doors and lock doors that we shouldn't unlock and lock. Sometimes we'll make mistakes, but he's saying, you are my butler. And you should take church life this seriously. Just, just let's just stop before and just contrast that with just kind of American church culture where we want to make everything, we want to lower every standard and just give everybody to come on in. We'll give you this, we'll give you that. With no commitment, we'll, we'll just do it. Come on, we'll just make it as comfortable for you because we just want you to come because we're insecure pastors. This is cathartic for me, by the way. Thank you very much. And do you see how that's, that's not good? Okay, I'll shut up. Any comments, questions, thoughts? Drew, Nelson. Flash, Gordon. That's in that? In, who? Oh, fine, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Flash, Gordon, something very different. Okay. I'm, uh, <laughs> sorry. I lost my train of thought. Okay. Uh, I remember now. Um, just for like, because I think this helped me when I was first learning about church discipline. Like what, for somebody that's like excommunicated, like mm. what does that actually look like yeah, for them? Like you. they're not... It's not like they're not allowed to come to church anymore. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. yeah, so the way it works here, and we have on two instances had to excommunicate somebody from the church. We don't think that that means that they can't come to physically come to church because we wouldn't want to remove them from the very, the very cure of sin. We think that they're, they're, they're trapped in sin, and you don't want to remove a person from the cure of sin. But we tell somebody that our posture towards you, we thought we had a posture of fellowship, but it's now moved to one of evangelism. And as best we can tell, we can no longer validate your confession. So we cannot do community assurance for you, and we cannot be sure. So we, we're not sure of where you stand. Only the Lord knows your heart. But we're not sure of what you stand. So you're no longer a member of the church, which means, and this is kind of the, the root Latin excommune, you are no longer welcome to the communion table you because when we and that's why do you see how ordinances are not just personal spiritual experiences they're for they're they're, they're for the church baptism is meant to to signify who's part of the church and the, the the lord's table communion is meant to remind us okay this is a family meal this is sunday supper we're looking around and we're, we're so only christians should take that and I, part of the local church and so we we know so you can't come to the table so that 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 is what what it means to be excommunicated um, at, at Cross Point. And I think, you know, most churches like us would, would hold to that. Yeah, Stephen. Um, along with the uh, privilege of communion being taken away, is that a gradual step or is that at the end when you were excommunicated? So like in Westminster, I know it specifically says to remove the um, privileges of the membership before the membership is removed, but I didn't know if that mm. was how cross point operated i don't think so like the the um presbyterians um are actually pretty good at this and they have like the the uh the they have um standards of church order and they have some of their bylaws and they have like steps i think there's like contumency and a few other things so they're a little bit more and part of that is because they have a different view of church government um so they wouldn't be congregational like us 
Um, and so the, uh, the final court of human authority in a church like a Westminster Confession of Faith-led church would not be the whole congregation. I think it would be the elders. Um, so there are some other steps. Like for us, it's just, we just kind of are following the steps that Jesus outlined in Matthew 18. So we're more biblical than the Presbyterians. No, I'm just kidding. I love Presbyterians. I, I as I was saying that, I thought that sounded like a shot at Presbyterians, whom I, I love. But yeah, that would be kind of a difference of an understanding of who the final court of human authority is. We think it's the congregation. And I think in those circles, there's a few other layers. So, yeah. But, but I want to say it is, there, it is gradual. It's not like some, we are aware of some egregious unrepentant sin, and within like a couple weeks, that person is at, no. I mean, the few times it's happened here, it's been like six to eight to nine months of behind the scenes pleading with this person to repent, informing the church, more prayer, more pursuit of this person, and then, yeah. Mark McGraw, did you, ever, did you have your hand up? Nope. Okay. Yes, Kirk. Just personally, if you're dealing with somebody that's been excommunicated, mm -hmm. personally, what should your relationship be? If you read further in 1 Corinthians, he's saying not, eat, not to even eat with the man. Yeah. So, I mean, I've always kind of thought the idea was that you treat them more as the, as the lost, but you're going to meet with the lost and try and show them love and Show yep. Christ. So. Yeah. And I think what's going on there, um, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Kirk. That's a good question that people have wrestled with through the years. I think what's going on there is, um, and let's look at this. Um, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greed or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to get out. In other words, he's saying... I'm not saying don't interact with sinners out in the world because then you couldn't deal with anybody. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, not even to eat with such a one. I don't think that that means we cease interaction with them. But I think that that's getting at, in this context, eating together in this fellowship meal is a sign of fellowship, I think, in the context of the Corinthian church. And so I think what's implied in that is you're not sitting down to a fellowship meal or an interaction with that person where you, by your association with them, are communicating to them that you think that they are in right standing with the Lord. That, that's how I would read that text. And I think kind of, it, I don't think it means that you cut off all association with them um, because I think they need the gospel. Now, I do want to say that there is another sort of interpretation in that verse is that um, some people think that Paul is dealing with such a heinous sin here that he is actually argue, arguing for, like, compute repudiation of this, repudiation socially of this person, like a shunning. And that may be the case. Um, but I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah. That's a good question, Kurt. All right, any other questions at all? All right, since it's 7.30, let me just say that um, we think that in the uh, leadership there, we think that there should be elders and deacons. I think most of you know that here. Um, and we think the elders should be men who lead the church through their understanding of the Word of God, and they should only be men. We don't think that women should be elders, not because women are less than in any way, but because the Bible says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 11 and 12, that I do not desire... I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but rather she is to remain silent. And I don't think that means a woman can't speak in church. I think it just means that she can't speak in an authoritative leadership way in preaching and teaching. And why does Paul say that? He says, period, next verse 13, he says, because, 
Adam was formed first, then Eve. So he's not basing his logic on the fact that the women in Ephesus weren't, um, you know, weren't, weren't educated or not capable. And so I don't think it's just merely a, I don't think it's merely a cultural argument. I think it's a across the generations argument. He says that God has a pre-fall created order for humanity and men are to be the humble Christ-like leaders and women are to joyfully um, follow the leadership of men in the home and in the church. So we think elders should be men who lead the church through their preaching and teaching, not through their social skills or their business skills. We think that elders are described in 1 Timothy 3 as men who are good examples of following Jesus. They're not necessarily the president of the bank or the, you know, the chamber of commerce guy or the construction company owner. If we have elders that are those things, they're secular business, business leaders, praise God, but they're not leaders in the church because they're leaders in the community. You see that? You can have a, a church full of bank presidents and the elders of the church be janitors. That, that, that's really important. Churches get into all sorts of trouble when they choose their leaders because they're, they're high-profile businessmen. Now, it's fine. I don't have anything against high-profile businessmen, but they shouldn't be members, leaders of the church just because they're, they're, they're business leaders. Do you get that point? The elders are men who lead through their, their spiritual maturity, example, and understanding of the Word of God and ability to deliver it. And then deacons are task-specific servants that help to lead specific areas of the church and to protect the unity of the church and to help the church function logistically, to free up the elders to um, oversee, preach, teach, and shepherd the flock. And I do think deacons, um, I, think, I, think, uh, I think the Bible mentions female deacons. I think deaconess, Phoebe is a deaconess in, in Romans chapter 16. Um, so I think that women can be deacons. Now, if you came from a church where there was a deacon board um, I think that probably that church misunderstood what deacons are. They're probably calling their deacons, they're probably, they probably were giving this thing that they're calling a deacon board elder responsibility and calling them deacons, wrongly so. And in that situation, I don't think a woman should be in that role, cause she's, but I think that church probably misunderstands what a deacon is. Um, so elders, deacons, we don't have time to get into that. All right. I love you guys. You guys have been so good. Um, and this has hopefully been helpful. And um, we're just kind of skimmed the surface. And we want to increasingly reflect the glory of God in the church. That's the, that's the most the gospel we preach. Um, we, we want our church to be formed by it. And we want it to just inform the way we live together. And I'm just so thankful for just the way um, this church has, has, I think, embraced and love this biblical concept of life together um, through these things that Robert and I have been trying to um, just remind us about in these past four weeks. So let me pray. And before you leave here, um, speaking of meaningful membership, uh, meet somebody that you don't know and just seek to make a relationship and maybe even offer an encouraging word and, and then find each other on Sunday and look to do one another good. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you. We want to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Thank you for these friends tonight. I pray that we um, would be more like Jesus as a result of our time together, that this church would reflect the glory of God, that we would be more of an aroma for Christ. And as Elaine said, and she, she described that story of their experience in China, uh, we, we want to be a, a, a kind of picture of the very gospel we believe. We don't, we don't want to confuse the world. Um, by there being a gap between how we gather and what we say we believe. 
So make us more like Christ, and pray that you would bless us as we go. Give us a good rest tonight. We might serve you for the rest of this week and bring us back to, our, to this place to worship together with the family of God for the glory of God and for the good of all people. In Jesus' name, amen.